You know, people can be so wrapped up in having something, so consumed by having something that their identity is tethered to it. And when your identity is tethered to something of such significance to you, whether it's a pursuit and ambition, whether it's uh, having something or being uh, recognized for excelling at something, whatever it is, you can be so attached to something, your identity so wrapped up in something that, that when you don't get it or you have it and you lose it, your life begins to unravel. That happens to people where their identity is so wrapped up in something that when they don't achieve it, they don't attain it, or they have it and they lose it, their life literally begins to unravel. I'll give you an extreme example of this I read about uh, a while back in the Chicago Tribune. There's an article about a mother in Texas whose daughter was a cheerleader. And apparently this was very, very important to her mother. I'm guessing her mother was also a cheerleader. And it's one of those scenarios where this mother's identity was tied to the success of her daughter and something that she was probably good at and passionate about as a child. And so projecting, you know, her identity now onto her daughter's success, she, she felt like maybe her daughter was not going to make the cheerleading squad. And so here's what she did. She actually hired someone to murder the mother of another girl who was trying out, thinking that because of the death of her mother, this other girl would be so overwhelmed by grief that she would not try out for the squad, which would guarantee a spot for her daughter. Now that is messed up. In, in fact, the, the article, thankfully, obviously the plot was foiled, it did not succeed and, and the woman was arrested. but she actually was able to hire someone for $2,500, which is crazy. The whole thing's crazy. And it's an extreme example of what it looks like to have your identity so tethered to something that when you don't get it or you have it and you lose it, you don't know what to do and your life begins to unravel. And that, again, that's an extreme example, but, but we've all felt this in some form or fashion, right? Like, like, hopefully, none of us here have hired a mercenary to take out the parent of uh, one of our kids' friends that's trying out for an athletic team, okay? But, but we probably, at some point in time or another, we, we probably harbored hatred or bitterness towards someone that got the job or got the promotion over us. Maybe, maybe we've harbored envy and jealousy over someone that has the marriage and the family that we want, but don't have. Maybe, maybe it's an overwhelming envy that leads to character assassination because someone that you go to school with is excelling in ways that, that you are not, or maybe someone got to be the valedictorian and you did not. There were some of us coming through school, never had to worry about that possibility. I would recommend that path to you, but your parents probably would not. Maybe, you know, maybe it's someone that you play on a sports team with and they, they don't seem to work as hard as you do, but yet they always seem to make the team and you struggle. And, you, you have this animosity toward them as a result. 
Listen, it's not that we're always hiring mercenaries, thankfully, but, 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 but there is something so broken inside of us that, that we all feel at times a, an anger, a bitterness, a jealousy, an envy, a hatred maybe, because someone got something that we didn't get, or we didn't get something that we thought we deserved, or we had something, but then we lost it, and we see others who have it, and, and, and that that generates in us a certain type of, of bitterness or anger or envy or jealousy. And, and if you're not careful over the course of time, that can lead your life to unravel in certain areas. I, listen, I remember as a middle school student trying out for my middle school basketball team. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience of going down to the athletic office early on a morning during the week to see if your name is on a cut list. <laughs> Anybody ever had that experience? Man, you're walking in and, uh, and, and you're looking at that sheet of paper and you're looking for one thing. You're looking for your name. And my name was not on the list because I was a short, skinny, untalented basketball player. But I was really, really good in the rec league, man. I could dominate the rec leagues. And then I tried out for my school team and I found out really, really quickly that it wasn't gonna happen. And, and for the first time in my life in a sport that I played, I didn't make the team. And you know what I found to be true at that time? Here's the first thing you do when, when your name's on the list, you start looking for other names on the list that you don't think should be there. Come on, am I right? Come on. I know I'm not the only one who's done this. Some of you are just sitting there and you're lying to yourselves. I know you've done it. And, and then you go home and, or you call your friend, you text her, I cannot believe that so-and-so made the team. They're always brown-nosing the coaches and it's only because, you know, uh, this kid's parents knows this and it's all of this and the whole thing's rigged. Well, it may be rigged or you may just be really bad. And no one loved you enough to tell you that you stink at basketball and you shouldn't be playing. But that's not how we roll in our society, right? Everybody's good. Everybody makes a team. Everybody gets a trophy until you try out for something that you don't, you don't make. And then if you've cultivated an identity in your heart that's tethered to that when you don't get it and someone else does. There's certain things that can unravel. H have you ever disagreed with a leader in your life, somebody you work for, a teacher? Have you ever, you ever disagreed with someone and found that you took the disagreement beyond just a disagreement on a decision and you began to assassinate their character? There's no reason for you to do that, right? There's no reason for you to go to that level. But in assassinating their character, it better grounds your position with way you feel like X, Y, Z ought to go. And I'm just saying there's, there, there's so many ways that when we don't get what we want or we don't get our way or we have something and we lose it and, and, and when our identity is tethered to it, there's so many ways that we press into that and there begin to be certain aspects of our lives that unravel. Now, I wanna show you today in our, our series on the beginnings the reason this is so, and the reason this is so is because every single one of us in our hearts are idolaters. 
Every single one of us in our hearts, we talked about this last week, like Adam and Eve, our parents, if you will, right? Like our first parents. Every single one of us want to be in the place of God. We want to have what we want. We want to govern our lives. We want to have our fulfillment. We want to have what we want, what we in our minds deserve. And we began to tether our hearts and our lives to things that build an identity. And here's what happens when your identity is not tethered to the God who created you, then as an idolater, you're tethering your identity to things that won't fulfill you and that won't keep you in a good place. Things that are temporal in nature, things that are fading and fleeing. And what happens is you begin to tether your identity to some things that aren't going to last and some things that can be fragile and some things that maybe you'll never have. And, and when you don't have them and you can't get them or you have them and you lose them, there's some things about you that begin to unravel. And so, and so today, I, I want to give you a very simple takeaway that I think is powerful. I think it's essential for every single one of us to live life to the fullest. Okay, here it is. Listen, idolatry is simply this. It is identity outside of intimacy with God. You see, idolatry at the heart, this is what happened to Adam and Eve. And we're going to see the fallout of that today in their children. What we're going to see is, is, is an identity that was tied to something outside of intimacy with God. That's the heart of idolatry. And I just want you to see that every single one of us do that. We lean in at times to, to passions, pursuits, to, to, um, to objects, to relationships, where, whereby we tether our identity to that. And anytime you're tethering your identity to anything other than intimacy with God, that is idolatry because God's will for you is that you live life to the fullest. You can only do that as you live life with him at your center. That's why the very first commandment that God gave to Israel, do you remember this? The very first commandment. Here's number one, don't have any other gods besides me. That's pretty straightforward, right? You're not to have any other gods besides me. Don't put anything in my place. Don't, don't, don't tether your identity to anyone or anything else. Number one, it's not going to bring you fulfillment. Number two, when you don't get them or you have them and you lose them, your life is going to begin to unravel. Don't have any other gods before me. Well, we've already seen in this series as we're walking through the very beginning of human history that Adam and Eve, our parents, our first parents, leaned into idolatry by trying to replace God with themselves and it led to disaster. And then I want you to see how that has, just see how that has spilled over now into their children. Here's what we see, Genesis chapter four now, kind of picking up now after Adam and Eve and them living in a world now where there's sin, brokenness, weeds, thorns, thistles, like broken relationships. They're not always getting along. <laughs> and, and now they're, they're gonna bring two children into the world. Here's what happens. Now, Adam and, and Eve had relations with one another and she became pregnant. And when she gave birth to Cain, her firstborn son, she said this, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. <laughs> Literally in the original language, the Old Testament, most of it's given to us in Hebrew. The word there is ish, I-S-H, ish. Literally, she says, with the Lord's help, I have produced an ish. <laughs> 
And this is what God told Adam and Eve to do. He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they begin this process and they have a son. And I just can't help but to think that Eve in her mind has this exclamation, this joyous proclamation. Now with God's help, I have an Ish, I have a man, right? I have a son. And in her mind, I can't help but to think that in her mind, she's thinking maybe this is the one who's gonna come born of my womb, who's gonna crush the head of the serpent. I can't help but to think like she's, she's got that on the forefront of her mind it, there in the garden, it, just wrestling with the shame of her sin and Adam, the shame of his sin against God. And after all their excuse making and everything else, God said, here's the deal, Eve. I'm gonna increase your, your pain and childbearing and there's gonna be this, this, this tension between you and your husband, but here's what I'm gonna do through your seed, through your womb, I am going to raise up one of the human race that's going to defeat once and for all the work of the serpent. And I just can't help but to think that in this exclamation, Eve is hoping that this would be the one who's coming to do just that. And so there's this exclamation, you see it. They have this son. She says, now, by, with God's help, I have produced an ish. <laughs> and then notice this, Abel doesn't get much fanfare. Well, later on, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. Which is biblical evidence that the firstborn children are the best children. Can I get an amen? Come on now, firstborns, you with me on that? Yes, yes. <laughs> Just kidding, secondborns, calm down. Your inferiority doesn't mean God loves you any less, okay? No, I'm just teasing. But you see here, there's this exclamation for Cain. He's the firstborn. And again, I just I can't help but to think that maybe he's the one. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then Abel is born also. Now check this out. Here's what happens. Now when they grow up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. He was a farmer. And when it was time for the harvest, literally in the original language, it says, at the end of days meaning at the end of the harvest season. Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. And the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. And let me just point out there, this is huge. That, is, that what is accepted and rejected is more than just the offerings, but it's the men themselves. The Lord accepted Abel and his offering. He rejected Cain and his offering. So often we focus on the offerings, and I'll, I'll comment on that, but it, it, it's about more than the offerings here. It's about the men themselves, the lives that they lived, the faith or lack thereof that they possessed. The Lord accepts Abel and his offering, but rejects Cain and his offering. Now watch this. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. Why? Why is Cain so immediately angry? I'll tell you why. Because his identity was not tethered to the Lord. His identity was not tethered to his faith. His identity was tethered to his prominence in his family. The fact that he was the firstborn. The fact that he gets the exclamation, right? The fact that somehow in his life and in their family dynamic, Cain in his own own mind was the hero of his story. 
His identity was tethered to his work ethic. His identity was tethered to his position in his family. His identity was not tethered to the Lord. And so here's what happens. When the Lord does not have Cain listed on the cut list, posted just outside the Lord's athletic office, he doesn't know what to do. And his life begins to unravel. Because his younger brother is accepted. And for the first time in his life, he is rejected. And so here's what happens. The Lord says to him, says, Cain, why are you so angry? Why, why is your face or, or dejected? Why, why are you so angry? And why do you look so dejected? And look at this. This is God's grace. You'll be accepted if you just do what is right. This shows it's, it's about more than the offering, you guys. This is, this is about the life that he's living. He's living a life rooted in selfishness. He's living a life rooted in his, his, his own prominence, right? His own fame. Like he's making the same mistake his father and mother made. And the Lord's like, listen, if you'll just live for me, like if you'll just delight in me, like the one who made you in my, in my image, the one who made your parents, literally, literally made them in my image. If you'll just do what is right, you'll be accepted, right? Do you, do you sense in Cain here, him going home after he looks at the cut list saying, this whole thing is rigged. No, Cain, you just can't dribble a basketball. The problem is you, man. Now you have everything you need to dribble well. You have everything you need to live life to the fullest. You have everything you need to honor God, to live for him, to work for him, to be mindful of him, to glorify him. You have everything you need. If you'll do that, you'll be accepted. Cain's like, no, 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 that has nothing to do with it. This whole thing is rigged. And so the Lord says to Cain, okay, watch out. Look at this. I love this this metaphor, sin is crouching behind your door and it is eager, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Sadly, Cain does not heed the Lord's counsel. So here what, here's what happens. Sometime later, Cain says to his brother Abel, hey man, let's, 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 let's run out into the field. I don't know what two guys do in the middle of a field, just hanging out. Looking at the scenery, I don't know back then, you know, I don't know what they did to pass the time. Hey, let's just go hang out. And so um, they go out into the field. While they're there, the scripture says, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. His life is now fully unraveled. The solution to his misery in his mind is to rid himself of the problem. He, in his own mind, is not the problem. His brother is the problem. And if he can get rid of his problem brother, then he will be accepted by God. And so afterward, the Lord comes and he asks Cain, notice how the Lord, when he comes in these moments, asks a lot of questions. <laughs> he did this with Cain's parents, right? And so he says, where's your brother? Where is Abel? And Cain, it seems to me with great sarcasm, says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Am I his guardian? How am I supposed to know where he is? Well, maybe Cain, because you beat him to death. 
And so the Lord says, well, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground and now you're gonna be cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood and no longer will the ground yield good crops for you and no, no matter how hard you work and from now on, you'll be a homeless wonder on the earth and Cain is expelled from his home and he is sent out to be a nomad. And he is overwhelmed with this punishment. Never repentant and owning his sin. You say, how in the world does someone get to a place of murdering another human being? How in the world can someone get to a place where they display this level of dysfunction? I'll tell you how. They've cultivated over the course of many years an idolatry whereby their identity is tethered to something other than intimacy with God. And when they lose that thing, they cannot handle it. When someone else gets it, they cannot handle it. And yes, some people even today go to a place of murder. But all of us in some form or fashion <laughs> wrestle with the root cause that anger in us, that bitterness in us, that self-justifying. We make the same mistake. We, we all have this same brokenness whereby we're trying to tether our identity to something or someone outside of intimacy with God. And today I just want you to see the foolishness, the, the foolishness of that, the fact that, that, that you'll never find meaning and fulfillment apart from a personal relationship with God. Because here's the thing with Cain, as I said a moment ago, right? Like, like the problem was Cain. There was no substantive difference between Cain and Abel. They were raised in the same family. They had the same parents. They were both taught to fear God. And by the way, let me comment on this. There was no issue with their offerings. Both animal offerings and agricultural offerings were acceptable to the Lord. Deuteronomy 26 will later spell this out for us. But, 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 but both offerings in and of themselves are totally acceptable to God. It's not that one was an animal and one was a, what, what, was, was a grain offering. Or something. That, that, that's not the issue. Here's the issue. Cain. The problem was Cain. The problem was that he had tethered his identity to something other than his intimacy with God. He wanted to rule his own life. He wanted his own accolades. He, he, he wanted to be featured as the hero of his story, right? And so, so, so when, when that was taken away from him and he wasn't the one who was accepted by God, not because of the substance of the offerings, but because of the intent of the offerings, right? Like, like, like Cain, Cain was just going through the motions, he didn't love God. He had no faith in God. And as a result, when Abel was favored, his life began to unravel. See, the New Testament helps us to understand this in actually three places, believe it or not. Let me take you to the first one, Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, all right? If you're new to church, you're new to the Bible, right? This is like a chapter of the Bible where we kind of walk through some heroes. Listen to me. The very first hero mentioned is Abel. Abel gets like a couple verses of scripture, right? He lived, he died. That's Abel's summary. <laughs> but yet here's what Hebrews 11 says. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. 1 John 3, look at this. We must not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one. 
and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother had been doing what was righteous. This goes way beyond the offerings. This goes to how these men lived their lives. Cain knew his brother was righteous. He saw maybe Cain's faith as weakness. But when the Lord accepted his offering and rejected his own, oh man, Cain couldn't handle it. Jude 1 says this, talking about people who seek to destroy the ministry of of, of the church, right? People who are opposed to God, but these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them, so they bring about their own destruction. Watch this. What sorrow awaits them, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. What is Jude saying? These people fail to understand the outcome of their sin. They don't see it, they don't understand it. You see, they're delving into an idolatry, which is an identity apart from intimacy with God. And that was Cain. And and so listen to me. I I think there's a lot we can learn. You can see how the New Testament authors hearken back to this first murder, this, 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 this encounter between Cain and Abel for instruction. I think there's a lot for us to learn, okay? Let me, let me give you just three takeaways. I encourage you to take these down just, just relative to how we can live a life of Abel, okay, and push back against the desires that we see in Cain, all right? How can we not be idolaters like Cain was and foolishly tether our identity to things that are temporal and fleeting? How can we really press into intimacy with God and live a life that, that would honor God, a life to the fullest, right? How, how can we walk in the faith of Abel? Well, first of all, look, look, here's how we do it. True worship is giving God your best and trusting him with the rest. Listen, if you wanna walk in the faith of Abel, you bring God your best and you trust him with the rest. But we overlook this when we're looking at what happened with, with the offerings. But, but if you go back and you look at those first few verses of Genesis 4, what you discover is that Abel brought the very best lamb to the Lord. He, he, he brought to the Lord, the, the scripture says, out of the first of his flock. Cain did not. We get the impression here, Cain is like running late to church, okay? And he's like, oh man, God, I'm late. Oh, I gotta have something for the offering. And, and like, he's like getting out of his car to go into church and he's sorting through the loose chains that fell between his seats so that when the plate is passed, he can throw something in there. There was no forward thinking. There was not, I'm giving to God out of my, my first fruits. There, there was no, okay, I'm gonna give to God something that costs me something. I'm gonna give to God um, out of a heart of, of love and reverence for God, knowing that he is worthy of all that I have. There was none of that with Cain. Cain's just kind of going through the motions. Cain is tipping God. Cain is just checking off the box. Not Abel. Now Abel brought to the Lord for his offering at the end of harvest season, the very best lamb that he had. The one that was worth the most. And he gave that lamb to the Lord. And it's a reminder to us that to walk in faith and to walk in saving faith and to walk in the faith of Abel means, listen to me carefully, we don't give God our leftovers. We give him our best. 
He is worthy of our very best. And here's why God talks about the importance of generosity. Here's why God talks about the importance of service. Here's why God talks about, by the way, that will show us what we call the pathway. Worship, connect, serve, and grow. Here's why God talks about these things. Okay, let me just tell you very, very, because God understands that if we don't tether our hearts through sacrificial giving, through living generously, through serving generously, God knows if we don't intentionally tether our hearts to him in these ways, then all of these other pursuits will become idols to us. And so God says to, I mean, God doesn't need what we give. He doesn't need what we do. Listen, what God asks us to do, he always asks us to do for his for, for his glory and our good. And, and here's what I want you to see in Abel, all the way back, that Abel's faith led him to give to God from his very best. And I wanna challenge you this week to give consideration to your life, to your finances, to your time management, to, to your gifts and abilities. And just, I mean, seriously, just give consideration to this simple question. Are you giving God your very best? Because he's worthy of it. And if there's an area of your life, you're like, you know what, I'm giving God my leftovers or I'm just tipping God or I'm just going through the motions. Listen, make the adjustment because true worship starts with giving God your best and then trusting him with the rest. That's why Jesus said, this is a New Testament equivalent, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these other things will be added to you. Now you trust God and you give out of your best and you trust him with the rest. And God honors that. And you know how God works? God has a way of multiplying your kindness, generosity, service, effort in ways that you cannot imagine. Abel understood that. Cain did not. Second, speaking of Cain, make a note of this. We learn that sin's purpose is not to amuse you, but to destroy you. How do we walk in the faith of Abel? How do we avoid the folly of Cain? Well, we need to understand that true worship is giving God our best, trusting him with the rest. Secondly, that sin's purpose in our lives is not to amuse us, but to destroy us. The Lord says graciously to Cain. By the way, the Lord comes to him before he murdered his brother. God comes to him, again, New Testament equivalent, that to, to provide a way of escape. Cain refuses, but God said to him graciously, Cain, sin is like a predator hiding behind your door. And if you don't get him before he gets you, it will ruin your life. You see, Cain was cultivating for many years an environment within his heart without the ability to see the outcome. I've told you before that sin will make you stupid. This is one of the key ways that sin makes you stupid. You cultivate an environment of sin in your heart. You allow there to be an area of idolatry in your heart. And in the moment, there's some pleasure. In the moment, there's some satisfaction. But yet here's what sin does. It blinds you to the outcome because sin's presence in your heart, dear ones, is not to amuse you forever. It's ultimately to come around side the door and kill you. 
That's why Peter says this in the New Testament, stay alert and watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's as if Peter had read Genesis 4. Sin is crouching at your door. And this is the deceptive nature of sin. You foster it, you give it an environment, you give it an outlet and it starts small. And early on you can control it, but its end game is to control you. No one gets out of bed at 20 years old and says, you know what, I'm gonna work hard, honor God, do what I need to do about 20 years. And then probably somewhere in my 40s, I'm gonna just wreck my life, ruin my family, blow everything I have. This is kind of my plan. It's gonna be awesome. No one says, you know what, I'm gonna ruin my marriage. I'm gonna crush my finances. I'm gonna get myself into addiction. I'm no one says that. You say, how does it happen? Because we foster an environment at first that we can control until there is a turning point and it controls us. And God says to Cain, you're in danger. You're living your life for yourself. You're tipping me with your little offering. You're going through the motions of being religious but not righteous. And now that I've affirmed your brother and not you, be careful. Because that sin crouching at your door to which you've given an environment is gonna lead you to an outcome that will destroy you. And none of us see the outcome when we're fostering the environment. Well, I'm not a workaholic, I'm just driven. I'm not neglecting my family, I'm providing for them. No, I'm not bitter. I have righteous indignation. I'm not a slanderer. I'm just offering my opinion. <laughs> I'm not addicted. I can stop anytime I want. Let me ask you a question. Do you see the big outcomes like murder, adultery? Absolutely you do. But do you see the outcomes of the sins that you're fostering that are in the early stages? The ones that you can still control? The ones that you think you have mastered? No. And so here's what God says. Let me give you, let me, I'm gonna take some of you back, okay? This is an old King James word. All right, some of you don't even know what that means, which is fine. Look it up. I'm going to give you an old King James word. Here, you know what the New Testament author said? Mortify. Mortify the sins of the flesh. Some of you are like, what in the world? Okay. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Here's how the Puritan, the great Puritan John Owen said it. You be killing sin or it will be killing you. What do we learn from Abel and Cain? What do we learn about what it looks like to walk in the faith of Abel? Well, true worship means we bring God our best. Secondly, sin's purpose is not to amuse us, but to destroy us. It's crouching at the door. We have to destroy it, put it to death before it destroys us. And then finally, check this out. The only hope we have with this sin in our hearts of curing what's broken inside of us has to come from something outside of us. Cain doesn't get this, you all. Cain doesn't get it. 
He doesn't even see his need for saving faith. He doesn't even see his need to humble himself before the Lord. He doesn't see his need to come to God with his very best. No, after all, he's the firstborn son. He's offering sacrifices. He's going to church. He was probably a deacon. He's, 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 he's um, in a place of prominence in his family. He's looking after his parents. He's doing what he needs to do. And his pride is rooted in an identity separate from intimacy with God. And therefore, all of his religious practices are just going through the motions. In other words, Cain is the very first Pharisee. Oh, I believe in God. I'm bringing my offerings. But look at me. How righteous I am. Look at the things my mother says about me. She doesn't say those about this loser over here. He's the very first Pharisee. He thought his religious practices were a substitute for righteous imputation. No. Newsflash, religion cannot save you. Working through the motions cannot save you. There is nothing that you can do or that I can do to cure this brokenness on the inside of us. The only hope we have is to humbly submit ourselves to the God who's provided an external fix for the internal brokenness in each and every one of us. Cain does not have that humility. Cain does not have that faith. He doesn't see his need for it. You know what? Cain is just like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Where the older brother, after the you know, younger brother squanders everything his father gave him and, and, he, and he returns home and you can just see the older brother's watching and he, he's like, oh man, this is gonna be good. Dad's gonna say, you're an idiot. And he's gonna call him all these names and he's gonna kick him out, probably physically kick him in the rear end and boom, send him packing. I can't wait. And then sure enough, his brother walks down the aisle and you get the sense that older brother is there. He's like, oh man, this is gonna be so good. And he's got his popcorn out and he's got his Coca-Cola Cola and he's watching and his father runs up to the prodigal, doesn't even let him get through the gate. He runs to him. He hikes up his robe and he's running like a fool. His dad clearly never made the middle school basketball team and he's going and he and he, and he hugs his son. And the scripture, he kisses him. It's a compound word over and over and over again. And he has him over his arm and he, and he brings him back to the house. And he says to his servant, get that fattened calf. We've been saving for Thanksgiving and slaughter that bad boy right now. We're gonna have a party because this son of mine was lost and now he's found. And people rejoice. And there's the elder brother with his jaw gaping open. Like what in the world? And he's furious. He has the anger of Cain. And he goes to his father and he says, Dad, how could you? And where does the attention go? To himself. I have served you all these years. I have been here for you. I, 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 my righteousness, my work, my diligence. And then this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours squanders everything, comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. 
And the story ends. You know, like that's a horrific ending. It is. Now, when we tell that story in vacation Bible school, we don't even get to that part. We just end it for the sake of your sweet little precious children with the prodigal returning home. And we talk about the love of God and all that weepy, gooey, it's good stuff. Okay, but you know, it's, we leave out. Oh no, dear ones, that parable's not over. Because the main figure in the parable of the prodigal is not the prodigal. It's the elder brother. And the elder brother with the anger of Cain says to his father, I cannot tolerate this. And, and we don't know how the story ends from that point forward except for the fact that in, in human history we do. Because you know what happens? The elder brother fashions a cross for the prodigal and he nails him to it. He says, I will absolutely not allow this sinner to survive. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees who were the target audience of the parable of the prodigal did to Jesus, correct? And that's exactly what Cain did to his brother. Why? Because his identity was tethered to something other than intimacy with God. And when he lost it, his life unraveled. And I just want you to understand, you and I can't fix that brokenness with anything other than the work of Jesus from the outside to come on the inside to forgive, to heal, and to restore so that we become a people who rejoice when all of the lost are found. Right? And so, and so here's the thing. I just want you to see, I'm, I promise you I'm landing the plane right here. Coming down, we're at 500 feet, okay? I know what time it is. I grew up in America. Here we go. What happened with Cain and Abel was ultimately to teach us something about what God would do through Jesus to fix you and me. And here's how the author of Hebrews says it. You have come to Jesus, right? Oh, this is so good. Woo! All right, come on. Let me have it on the screen. There it is. All right. Come on. All right. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here's the blood of Abel, right? Come on, woo! Here is the blood of Abel, the blood of Abel soaking in the ground, soaking in the soil in the middle of that field was crying out for vengeance. But the blood of Jesus, the blood of this new covenant, not the blood of bulls and goats and rams, not the blood of animals, no, a better covenant, a new covenant, right? Jesus, when he shed his blood for us, he did so willingly. No one forced him on that cross. No one made him give up his life. Unlike Abel, Jesus was not murdered against his will. He volunteered to shed his blood so that his blood cries out not vengeance, but mercy. 
mercy, mercy to all who will believe. And we all like Cain are trying to get to heaven through our own relationships with, well, ourselves and our own works and our own religion. And oh man, you can't fix yourself. But the blood of Jesus, who's the author, Jesus, of a newer, better covenant, the blood of Jesus humbly in saving faith through turning from your sin and accepting his salvation, the blood of Jesus, dear one, sprinkled on your heart will cover all of your sin. It will relieve you of your shame. It will give you a meaning and a purpose to live your life. You can tether your identity to intimacy with God. And, and you don't have to worry about how rich or poor you are. You don't have to worry about how athletic or non-athletic you are. You don't have to worry about how others see you because you will be eternally loved and accepted by our Father who made us in His image. And this blood of Jesus sprinkled on your heart speaks a word not of vengeance, but of mercy. Redeemed, forgiven, loved, accepted. And this salvation is available to all.